welcome to part nine of 20 Years On, the series where we look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since July the 1st, 1997. I'm Anna Fenton, and this week Keith Griffiths, who's the chairman of leading Hong Kong architect firm ADAS, ponders why, in a city renowned for its striking skyline, he can't name any great new buildings from the past two decades. We hear how a costly 20-hectare basement is holding up development of the West Kowloon Cultural District and why the tree huggers should stand aside and let building in the country parks commence. Former Swire Properties boss Martin Cubbon explains how world-famous architect Frank Gehry was lured to Hong Kong, hoping to build a cultural icon to rival the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, but had to settle for designing the city's most expensive block of flats instead. Finally, we hear from property expert and Harbourfront Commission Chairman Nick Brook, he recalls the roller coaster property market ride of the last 20 years and explains Chief Executive Carrie Lam's plan to solve the current housing crisis. But first, I met up with architect Keith Griffiths to hear about the changes in architecture since the handover. In Hong Kong, the changes have been more particular to Hong Kong and not following the worldwide trend. But let's deal with the worldwide trend first. What we've found in the last 20 years in architecture is that the increasing use of computers has led to building shapes changing. So in the past, we had to define a building shape on a flat, two-dimensional piece of paper. So buildings tended to be very simple, cubic forms, extruded plans. And any particular shapes and forms were necessarily kept fairly simple. But now that we've got computers that work truly three-dimensionally, we can sculpt our buildings, much as a sculptor would use a piece of clay. And you'll notice it also in car design. Car designs are becoming more complicated, more complicated shapes. So we can define these shapes within the computer, and we can hand those programs on to the factories. And then those can be fed into the computers running a production line to make curtain wall components that can be quite strange shapes from curves and so on and so forth. And that's why we're seeing on the skyline of the high-rise uh, cities all over the world now rather strange curved-shaped towers, gherkins, twisted forms, a Shanghai Tower, so on and so forth. That's one of the really big changes in architecture in the last 10 or 15 years. I see, but what happens when a developer says you're not making maximum use of the space that a box would make, for ex a box shape would make, for example? Well, we immediately question, does a box make best use of space? Just because it's got right-angled corners doesn't mean it's necessarily the best use of space. Especially when we look at a live-work dynamic that's been growing in the last 10 years. People now demand that their workspace is also a live space, an acceptable living workspace, and also a recreational space. So we have WeWork. If we look at the uh, headquarters of buildings, IT companies like Tencent in Shenzhen, we see this huge amount of recreational space, interconnectivity space between different floors. So the ubiquitous repeated floor office tower is becoming a thing of the past. Actually, we need connected floors, we need voids, we need green spaces, we need to have plants within the building to clean the air, provide recreation space and sustainability. So the whole brief has changed, the expectations of society has changed. Okay, now when you look around Hong Kong now and think of the last 20 years, do any great new buildings spring to mind? 
that's a sad pause, isn't it? Because if I was sitting in any other city, then I would immediately come up with 10 or 20 names and I'd be filtering them thinking, well, which is the better one? But in fact, I'm sitting in Hong Kong thinking, in the last 20 years, how many great buildings have we built? Very, very few indeed. And why is that? Because if we go back to prior to 97, 98, we have some truly great buildings being built in Hong Kong. We have the airport building, Hong Kong Bank headquarter building, the Bank of China building, some really great buildings. So what happened in the last 20 years that we can't name off the tip of our tongue some great buildings? Of course we have IFC and we have ICC, and those are really good landmark buildings. But they're, they're high, great shapes, and they're commercially very viable buildings. So I think those two are two good buildings. But when any cultural buildings? No, not normally, that I can not at all. Normally, a city would be replenishing its cultural buildings on quite a uh, committed program. And as society develops and has great expectations, we'd have better cultural buildings. But for 20 years, we've been sat on the West Kowloon Cultural District, and we haven't yet created one single new cultural building in Hong Kong. What happened with the West Cultural Development? Because it's been going on since 1999, I think. <laughs> Goodness, it's a long story, isn't it? It started off as an international competition, an open international competition, where I think close to 100 architectural companies from all over the world put forward their ideas for master planning. It's 40 hectares. So it was intended to be a master plan, which then would guide future development, parcelization and sale of pieces of land to develop the cultural district. But the winning scheme out of that was a scheme by Foster that had a huge glass roof over the top of it. That's Sir Norman Foster, and it had like a giant glass canopy, as I recall. That's right. Very practical for Hong Kong. Very practical indeed, particularly from the point of view of land sale, because it meant that whoever built the glass roof actually had the right to develop under the glass roof. How high was it intended to be? It was about 40 metres high, that roof. <laughs> so, in a sense, that by winning the competition, it also precluded the development because so much money had to be put into the roof before you could start to develop. And furthermore, of course, the Hong Kong public are not going to accept one developer developing the whole of West Kowloon Cultural District. So from that abortive attempt, it went out for a further developer-led consortium, almost like a build-operate-transfer, and there I think there were four companies bidding, and at that point the public intervened and said, no, why should our cultural district be led by commercial developers? The government should be developing our, our cultural district, um, not private developers. And so that led to the situation that we have now. Now, we don't have a roof over the top of it now, but we have a massive basement underneath it. And big basements that are contiguous across the whole 20-hectare site are very expensive to build. Why are we doing that? Well, that was part of the, of the again, the Norman Foster Master Plan was to bring all vehicles into the basement to service up onto a pedestrianised plaza, which is a superb idea if you have the money to build out that basement before you put any buildings on top of it. It's very difficult to stage a singular contiguous basement. You have to build it out. So, wonderful idea, but 
completely impractical. It sounds like a giant swimming pool. <laughs> we should let the water in. No. Eventually, once it's built, once the basement's built, committed, and the, uh, the uh, uh, cultural buildings are built on top, it's going to be absolutely wonderful. Pedestrianised, vehicular-free space. Is it in the right place? Do you think people will go over there for that? Oh, I think so, yes. I think the arguments about will we building it in the right place are, are fallacious. Uh, we have the express rail link to China, which will be finished in just over a year. Now, well, tell us about that building. Oh, dear. Um, well, that's one of our designs, mm. and that's going really well now. You'll see the steel frame is up for that wonderful roof. It's going to be one of the most significant buildings, not just in Hong Kong, but in the world. It really is a very beautiful arrival into Hong Kong. There will be more people using that station in Hong Kong International Airport. So it's a very, very important arrival point into Hong Kong. When you get out of the train, you'll be able to look up through a wonderful volume and you'll see the peak of Hong Kong Island across the harbour. From Kowloon side. From the Kowloon side. So it's, it's a real statement of you've arrived in Hong Kong. Okay. And it brings people, of course, immediately to the West Kowloon Cultural District. So I think the West Kowloon Cultural District is ideally situated at the, uh, at the most important rail station on the Airport Express link, the Kowloon Station, and the IFC highest building in Hong Kong, and also upon West Rail. So it's really ideally served by infrastructure. Okay, now if we dig a bit deeper into why we have this paucity of, of new impressive buildings in the last two decades, if I think back to the Donald Jung era when he was chief executive, nothing much happened with either release of land or even building of HOS flats, like none. Um, is, is that the, the, the legacy that we're now suffering from, of, of no new building? Yes, I think the, the problem over the last 20 years has been uh, lack of land supply release by the government. Now, whether that's because they can't deal with the cooks in the new territories or because we haven't reclaimed land that we should have reclaimed is a moot point. The fact is that we've only built on just over 25% of our land in Hong Kong. Most uh, sophisticated cities will have built on 70% of their land, including Singapore. So why have we built on so little land? Well, we've categorised 40% of our land for trees. They have a better quality of life than our people, unfortunately. So 40% is... is um, country park. park. Country park. And I really have to doubt if that's sensible. Do we need 40%? When we've only used 8% of our land for people to live on. If we just took 5% of that country park land away. We'd still have 35% of country park, but we'd increase from 8% to 13% for residential. And what a difference that would make. All those people who are still living with their parents, all those parents who are now living with children and grandchildren, the conditions are absolutely appalling. Our population has gone up from 6 million to over 7 million people, but our net housing has actually marginally reduced. Well, that can only mean one thing, that people are living in worse space standards than they were in 1997. So you think we should go in and chop up a bit of country park? I think the last new town we built, Chung Chung, the government was not afraid to compulsory purchase land as it needed to provide housing for our citizens. 
And I think for the last 20 years, our government has been too scared to deal with the northwest and northeast new territories and get on with finding land to build our new towns. Surely it's just a matter of giving the Hungy Cook enough money. Probably, but in either case, that land belongs to the government and it should take it back under compulsory purchase and get on with building three or four new towns in the northwest and northeast new territories where we have East Trail, we have West Trail, we have fantastic infrastructure up there and it's right next to Shenzhen. In the time that we've been dithering, Shenzhen has grown from a few million people to 22 million people. I doubt that the Shenzhen government would ever put up with something like the Cooks when they need land. That was architect Keith Griffiths. Next, I caught up with Martin Cubbon, who ran Swire Properties for several years up to 2014. He explained how the big developer has single-handedly reinvented a whole neighbourhood over the past 25 years. The biggest Swire development in Hong Kong over the last 20 years has undoubtedly been in Taiku Place, where we, over a course of 20 years, have, have transformed what was once an industrial heartland into um, a first world uh, business district and that involved the conversion of, of four buildings, uh, the purchase and then subsequent redevelopment of another four such that now we have about 8 million square feet of, of grade A office space with another 2 million in the pipeline. Now when did you start doing that? That started in uh, the very early 90s. Um, I mean, Swires uh, have owned industrial space in Quarry Bay for many, many years, since way before the Second World War. Um, and in the 60s, they built some industrial buildings which various businesses owned by Swires occupied. As Hong Kong developed and the, the industrial landscape changed, so Hong Kong moved you know, with those times and we converted these industrial buildings into office buildings. Um, and that started really in the very early 90s. Um, and it's continued right up to the present day. Now, when you did that, you know, we used to call it the Gaza Strip <laughs> down there. When you started all that, did you envisage that it would become this great um, centre of, of office life, a life, like another CBD in Hong Kong? Well, the vision, if it's anybody's, is Keith Kerr's, because he was running Swire Properties in the 90s when that, that, that transition began. Um, I think he generally did feel that Hong Kong was developing and growing so quickly that Central wouldn't always be, you know, the prime business district, that there would be a need for uh, an alternative. Uh, it may have taken 25 years to happen, but it's now happening. So this was a Swire vision and decision more than a government-driven one? Um, very much. I mean, I'm not trying to uh, in any way um, dismiss government's own contribution. I mean, I think they were happy that we developed in this manner. Um, and I think in terms of utilising you know, the leases that were available to us to convert to office buildings, the government were, were, were duly willing. Uh, but yes, it was very much a, a Swire Properties vision that, um, that we begin to move with the times and that we look to grow our business in, in, in a way that Hong Kong was facilitating because it was becoming a first world business and financial centre. Um, and if you think about that period from basically very early 90s, you know, right through to 98. It was a period of tremendous growth for Hong Kong as a financial services centre. Um, there was a hiatus for four or five years, um, as we all know, after the Asian financial crisis. But, I mean, really after SARS, it picked up again with, you know, with real gusto and, as I say, it continues today. Mm. Now, please tell me about the origins of Swire's <coughs> vision for the Frank Gerhi development and all those exciting plans and, and what happened and what didn't happen there. Yeah, well, it, Probably a bit of outrageous good fortune in some respects because Frank Geary being who he is, he, I don't think he would have 
naturally come to Hong Kong to build a relatively small residential development. Now, he's, let's just, um, for the benefit of the listeners, explain that Frank is a very famous American architect. Yeah, he's actually Canadian, um, and I think he's now 84, um, but he was an early Pritzker Prize winner, um, probably the most celebrated contemporary architect there is, actually, no respect to others, but he is uh, viewed as one of the, the greatest of his, certainly of his generation. And Swire had a vision to get him to develop a number of projects in Hong Kong in the early 2000s. They did. We came together because of a project which um, was related to the West Kowloon cultural development. It was Swire's vision for what Hong Kong might have been in the context of cultural offerings. Um, the How government, did you see it? Uh, well, the government basically called for submissions different ideas, different views about how Hong Kong would develop its own cultural hub. Um, we took the view that the, that the culture should be taken to the people, so should be um, distributed around the territory. So there was a centre on West Kowloon, there was a centre on, uh, on the old Kai Tak Airport site, and there was a Geary centre, which was to be uh, akin to the Guggenheim in, uh, in Bilbao, um, in front of Pacific Place in Admiralty. And that was our submission um, it was so a, where Civic Square is now and the new government buildings would have been a big uh, arts hub? Or? That was our idea, yeah, that there would be, in fact, a Geary iconic building, uh, not actually in, in terms of how it looked like the Guggenheim in Bilbao, but something, again, which would definitely catch the imagination. Um, and that was a great process, working with Frank. He clearly enjoyed uh, his time in Hong Kong and, and his time with Swires, and then whilst we lost out in that sort of um, in that tender process with government uh, when uh, we thought about the idea of redeveloping this beautiful site in um, on the peak this uh, is the opus which was the two o- old two old villas i think that you um, it was a, a very old house which was the um, which was used by the manager of the dockyard in the days when the most important job in Swire was running a dockyard um, the manager of that of that business had this lovely house on Stubbs Road um, it was a lovely house in the context of where it was. It wasn't an architectural masterpiece, and therefore we didn't feel we were sort of robbing Hong Kong of its heritage by redeveloping it, uh, particularly with Frank Geary, into a 12-storey, um, one flat per floor, uh, admittedly upmarket residential development. Now, this turned into what became Hong Kong's most expensive real estate, didn't it, for a while, the, in terms of residential Yes, it's important to mention that phrase for a while because Hong Kong has continued to sort of move on. But yes, for a period of time, they were the most expensive per square foot flats anywhere in the world, I think. And how would you describe them? Or how were they described? Because it's quite a singular looking building. Yeah, I think it, uh, it can be seen to be pretty much unique in Hong Kong in terms of how it looks. Um, I mean, Frank Geary uh, himself actually you know, described it as something which you know, looked to make the most um, of the location, both... Uh, taking the best of the views, which all look toward the water, but also the background, which was, uh, you know, Mount Cameron itself uh, and the majesty of that mountainside and the trees with it. So, um, you know, he would argue, and he's more adept at doing this, that this has, you know, sort of real empathy with its surroundings. Um, what he did do was create a building which had completely open uh, windows, so very few internal structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it does have is its architecture, if you like, its, its, um, its engineering architecture on the outside, and that's what's very unusual about it. Uh, also very expensive, but it did create this possibility of apartments with very few internal structures. So when you walk in there, you really do feel you're in a gigantic open space. 
I think um, I think it's fair to say that Caroline Wilson, who was the consul general, uh, the British consul general, who lived there for a while, found that extremely challenging because, as any woman would tell you, um, you can't furnish a house if it's full of windows that go from floor <laughs> to ceiling. You've got nowhere to put anything. Uh, yes, quite possibly. I mean, I, I certainly know she enjoyed her time there. That's uh, that, I think that's without uh, question. But yeah, I mean, it does offer certain challenges uh, depending on what your lifestyle is. But it certainly gives you an incredible sensation when you walk in there in terms of that openness and, and space. That was Martin Cubbon. Finally, I caught up with real estate expert and Harbourfront Commission Chairman Nick Brook, who explained why Hong Kong property prices show no signs of plunging just yet. But first, he explained what was happening with bricks and mortar back in 1997. Well, we were building up to a, um, a bubble, as, as you probably remember. Um, everybody was speculating on the future, and particularly speculating on the future of the property market. Um, we had people trading contracts, um, never any intention of uh, buying the unit, completing the unit, flipping the contract. Um, what, before they'd even bought it, just yes, the right to buy? buy yes, yes. Um, so it was make-believe, if you like, in, in many ways. And uh, uh, financial crisis obviously drew some attention to the situation, but um, the bubble was bound to burst, and it did, and it coincided with the financial crisis. I mean, largely, I think, driven by um, C.H. Tung, if you remember, announced that he was going to build 85,000 units, public sector units, a year. Um, and that sent all kinds of signals to those buying in the private sector. Um, and calm, well, didn't calm the thing, it caused a major correction. I mean, values, as you probably remember, came down 70%, 70% in a matter of months. That's an amazing number now mm. when you look back, isn't mm. it? And half the community found themselves in negative equity because they'd all played the game and got caught. Yeah, so mm. what happened after that? Well, we had 54 months of deflation, um, uh, which, uh, which led us to SARS. So we had a very difficult period um, when values um, basically bubbled along the bottom. Um, no real momentum to the market, no real certainty about future, etc. We were absorbing 97. Um, and then we had SARS, which obviously compounded um, the challenge, if you like, um, and extended the period of pain. But post-203-4, stroke four, we began to see confidence come back into the market. And then we saw values rise significantly between the period 204 to 208, um, about the best part of 110, 120% in, in, in uplift in, in, in total. So that put it back to ha higher than before In 97. some cases, yes. I mean, in some estates, yes. I mean, obviously, uh, some lagged a little, but no. Generally speaking, we were up um, to 97 values and in some cases above. Um, but this was real demand. That's, again, speculative demand. Uh, 97 had been speculative demand, obviously. Um, then we had another financial crisis, 2008. Um, and most people expected, I think, quite a major correction, having seen what happened in 97. Mm. But we saw, quite frankly, a minor dip. And within a matter of months, the market was on the, on the, on the rise again. Um, it had dipped 15 20%. Um, but it was on the, on the way up again. And we've seen since 08 until now. And, uh, you know, the pundits say it may well continue. We've seen values come increase again, 120 130% since 08. Wow. Now, I think we used to say before 97 that there was a perceptible, was it a seven-year cycle or, or something like that? But now there doesn't seem to be any cycle. Well, no, um, there isn't a cycle because there's this serious uh, mismatch or imbalance, if you like, between supply and demand. Um, government just hasn't been able to keep up with demand. Um, during Donald Chang's period, there was, I'm afraid, a period, I think, of neglect uh, when... Uh, 
they took their eye off the ball in terms of land supply, but also they um, played to the hands of the developer because uh, they allowed the developers to specify when sites should be offered for sale. They had a reserve list, and if, if a developer wanted a site offered for sale, he applied. But it meant that the, the call, if you like, was with the development community and not with government. Whereas now, of course, they have sales lists, and every two or three month, every two or three um, every month, they offer for sale two or three sites uh, uh, for sale by tender. So they've taken control of the supply situation, if you like, rather than leaving it with the developers. But playing catch up is not easy. No, and so many of the sites are not ready for development. No, no. So when can we see any change in the situation with supply? Uh, I don't think it's a silver bullet. In honesty, I don't think there's an easy, a quick answer. I mean, CY alone found it very tri- difficult. He's, he's managed to accelerate the, the process. Carrie Lamb's inherited the same challenge. Um, I mean, her, her job, I think, is persuade people to wait um, and, that, uh, and persuade them that over time there will be more choice um, and, and the prices maybe not necessarily going to decline, but they will plateau. Um, I think the best we can hope for a plateau in the future. And when do you think that might happen? I think that's a year away, in honesty. I mean, I'd like to be you know, saying that the calming measures government's trying to introduce um, and the uh, increased supply are going to cause that plateau uh, sooner or later, but I think it's a year away. Right. Now, we've heard a lot about mainland Chinese coming in and, and parking their money here in property as, as a safe haven for that. Is that still going on? It is, it is. I mean, you're right, we've had two waves. We had the buyers of Finnish units, um, and government tried to take them out of the equation and and, uh, tax them out of the equation with stamp duty and the like. More recently, we've seen the Chinese developers outbidding local developers for uh, for sites when government's offered a site for sale by tender. The highest tender invariably has come from a Chinese mainland developer. I think 55 60% of these sites sold in the last year have gone to Chinese developers. And how about rich individuals from the mainland coming down and just buying one-off flats? Do we see much of that? We see less of that, but it's still seen as a haven, a safe haven for them uh, uh, to um, invest their, their, their money, their, ca- their monies, if you like, their cash. Um, uh, and, it, and it's a belt hole, too. I mean, a lot of them use the units, albeit on a periodic basis. Mm, now, we've seen stamp duties bounce up and down in the last few years. Has, as a strategy for cooling the market, has that worked? Not really, not really. I mean, it's taken some of the players out, but the demand is so strong and the liquidity is, 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 is so much, so, it's so large, so high, that um, uh, even if you tr- tr- trim out some of the, the fringe players, if you like, there's still a very strong underlying demand. Mm, now, I think there's a fair few empty flats around town which leave people scratching their heads about why the government doesn't put pressure on developers and take or, or owners and take back empty units if they're left fallow for long periods of time. Does the government have some reason for not intervening? Uh, well, they've said or claimed in the past it's all too difficult, um, but I think the reality is it can be done. Um, and and uh, the rating and evaluation department they know exactly which units are up and which are empty. Um, so it should be possible to tax those who keep a unit empty for any length of time. And I know that, well, I say I know, I believe Mrs Lamb, has. that's one of the measures that Mrs Lamb is seriously contemplating. That was Nick Brook, Harbourfront Commission Chairman. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when we look at religion and find out how faith has changed in this town in 20 years.